Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to share your word. I just ask that as a result that, uh, the Lord, that your word would go forth rapidly and be glorified, that um, it would transform our hearts, transform our minds, that, Lord, it would be a work of your spirit and not just a work of words. Please help us today to be transformed uh, through your word and the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay. So, good morning. Good morning. We're going through the book of Ephesians, if you didn't know. We're currently in our fourth week, so today the scripture is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. So I'm just going to get into it. Does that sound good? So uh, we're going to start with the walls that divide us. So this is Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, and then I'll give some background into the book. So therefore, remember that formerly you, oh, there it is, that formerly you, the Gentiles by birth, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. So like I said, we're going through the book of Ephesians, and the book of Ephesians to me is one of my favorite books of the Bible. It's one that I've taken to heart, and I think a lot of other people kind of share the same sentiment that this is a very special book of the Bible. Uh, American Baptist theologian W.O. Carver described it as the greatest piece of writing in all of history. Uh, English poet Samuel Taylor called it the divinest composition of man. And so what is it about this book that makes it so special? A little bit of background into the book is that Ephesus was a uh, city in, in the Roman, uh, Roman Empire, and it was written by Paul in, while he was in prison in Rome uh, in 60 and 61 AD. And the city was made up of 250,000 residents. It was known as a place of a center for magic and all this kind of stuff. So imagine a big city like New Orleans or something like that. There's a lot of this stuff happening. Uh, you read in Acts about the Temple of Artemis and how these people had made allegiance. So trade and uh, idol worship was a main so source of income uh, for the city. And so from the libraries to the culture ports, the food, it was a cultural center in Rome. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And the church in Ephesus was made up of both Jewish and Gentile believers. Uh, it is well known that a substantial Jewish community in Asia Minor existed since the 5th century B.C. And when Paul had visited Ephesus around 53 A.D., there was a Jewish community at Ephesus for over 300 years. And so we kind of see that here in this opening section of Scripture, that he's writing to these people. And what makes the book of Ephesians unique is that it is not a um, letter written like a pastoral letter, like to Titus or Philemon or Timothy. And it's not a corrective letter. It's not written to correct something that's wrong at the church, like he has to write to the Galatians or the Corinthians because they're backbiting and fighting amongst themselves. But it's like the, the Ephesian church is like the well-behaved church. And it's because they're the well-behaved church that Paul is able to write more freely. Because in the book of Jude, we see that he wanted to write to them concerning other things, but he couldn't because of more pressing matters. But here what Paul has is he has a, a church that's well-behaved, and so forth he can write what he wants to write about. And the church in Ephesus is well-described as one of the most well-taught churches that ever existed. Um, Paul taught there. So li listen to the church leadership. Paul taught there for three years, and then his disciple Timothy took over, and then it's believed that the apostle John was in leadership at the church of Ephesus. So imagine a church like that. The Apostle Paul, then Timothy, and the Apostle John. So this is a healthy church by all accounts. 
And so talking about this, he's telling them before the final years, he's kind of giving his passing, his passing thoughts to his best student in the church at Ephesus about how to become a church created in Christ Jesus for the glory of God. And that's what our particular section of Scripture emphasizes today. Is today we're going to be talking about how to be a church that can live in unity. Because if we look at the church today, we don't feel like the church is really living in unity, or at least I don't feel like that. We read the accounts of acts of the disciples dwelling in unity, having all things in common, praying for one another, being concerned for one another. But then we look around at the church today and we don't really see that happening very much. And we have this issue of disconnectedness in an age where we say we're the most connected generation as far as social media and all these different kind of things. We're actually the most disconnected. And so this has been a major issue and it's increased since COVID. COVID changed us. It says some statistics. Have you guys ever seen, uh, what's that movie where you... I'm blanking, I'm sorry. Uh, Oh, fun with Dick and Jane. Statistics. Okay, no one knows what I'm talking about. Okay, never mind. All right, you guys can just laugh at me. That's good, too. Uh, even before COVID-19, uh, half of U.S. adults reported experiencing measurable levels of loneliness. A Harvard study found that 43% of young adults reported increase in loneliness since the outbreak, outbreak of the pandemic. And one poll showed that loneliness among 50 to 80-year-olds had increased from 27% to 56 in June of 2020. So that's the world, but how's the church? But according to Barna, uh, U.S. churchgoers report similar levels of loneliness to their non-churchgoing peers. So there's not much difference. We're in the church still experiencing that disconnection and that loneliness, and many of us feel that. And so with that, this isn't anything new. Paul here, writing to the Ephesians, he's, it, he's addressing issues of disconnectedness. Not in the Ephesians, but he's talking about the global church. And in this text, he suggests that there is hostility or there is a separation or hatred between two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And the hostility that existed between these two can be dated back to the book of Genesis. Abraham was a normal man living a, that was given a... a extraordinary promise from God that through his descendants that he was going to bless the world and that all the nations will be blessed through his offspring. And God gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision to be a marketer or a seal of that covenant. So we can do the same today. It's an outward sign of an inward reality, like baptism or wedding rings or those kind of things. Then Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes. 12 tribes, then Israel grows in Egypt and they become enslaved to, to Pharaoh because he's intimidated by them. And after 430 years, they're brought into, into freedom. And God makes a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He makes an agreement with them. He enters into a relationship with them that was to distinguish them from all the other nations of the world. And they were to look different from the other nations. They weren't to worship as the other nations worship. They were to uh, not share in their sexual practices they were to have a different diet than the rest of the nations, that they were to be completely different. They were even to leave the, the edges of their crops so that the poor and the needy in the land could, fill, to, could eat. And so it was, a, it was a law that was meant to bring complete unity and it cared for all people. And this law that was supposed to make Israel a light to the nations to show how the nations were supposed to live actually became a thing of separation. In Proverbs 6.23, it says, For the commandment is a lamp and the law is a light. And then Moses, in Deuteronomy, when he's writing, or sorry, when he's speaking to the Israelites, he says, Observe them carefully. So he's talking about the law. He says, Observe these things carefully, 
For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near to them as the way the Lord our, our God is near to us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body I am setting before you today? And so in the same way that, um, that if a father treats one child better, that child becomes prideful and the other becomes jealous, it's kind of what happened with Israel and the rest of the nations, that God bestowed his favor on them by giving them the law. And so Israel started to think, oh, we're better, and the rest of the nations uh, viewed them in jealousy or had hostility that they were prideful. Okay, so we see this in the book of Genesis with Joseph. Joseph is the favored son. So he gets the, the coat of many colors, and he as a result becomes prideful, and then his brothers become jealous. That's kind of what we see here. There was hostility. It says that his brothers could not speak peaceably to him. And so that's what we see here. And this covenant that God gave to Israel caused a divide between two groups. The Jews and the Gentiles, the Jews and the non-Jews, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, alternatively still believers and unbelievers. And this created hostility, hatred. The Jews viewed the Gentiles as ignorant, evil, and less than. The Gentiles viewed the Jews as arrogant, hypocritical, and stuck up. And this thing that divided the two was the law that had been given to the Jews. It became a wall of hostility, a wall of hatred. A wall that divides, a wall that divines who you are and who you're not. A wall that creates ideology. A wall that separates, a spiritual wall. But the spiritual wall has very practical implications. So I think we have a picture. This is the current wall that, this, that divides Israel and Palestine. So a very real wall that shows what it's like, this hostility that exists even today in the world. But this issue is much deeper than just lineage or race. Our division is much deeper than that. It's not an issue of the flesh, but it's an issue of the spirit. Because in verse 12, it points to what the, the real issue for all this is. Is it separation from Christ? Amen. Separation from Christ means to be separated from all things good. In fact, hell is just a separation from the presence of God. It's a separation from all things good. So we, we know what it's like, that there's, there's just some things that are supposed to be together, like peanut butter and jelly, right? Or Michigan and losing. They're just supposed to be together. So I'm just salty. I am. Maybe that's a wall that can't be healed, is the Michigan-Ohio State. No, I need to repent. No. But there's just some things that are supposed to be together. But our hearts, you know, when we watch a movie or something and we see a, a child separated from its mother, our hearts wrench because we know that something wrong is happening. Or we're watching a movie and the team that's supposed to be together just isn't getting it. And we know that something wrong is happening. But even more saddening than any of those things is our separation from Christ. Because separation from, from Christ means separation from the community of Christ. It means separation from God himself. As John says of Jesus, in him was life. And the life was the light of all mankind. But separation from him, we don't have any of those things. That he is our way into the family of God. And so we all know those people that maybe you guys have had this experience where you needed to get into somewhere and you couldn't do it on your own. You didn't have the connections, but you knew someone who did. And because, it was because of your relationship with that person that you were then able to get in. And this is what it's like for us in Christ. 
But if we're separated from him, we're lost and we're lost and alone in the world. And this was the state of the Gentiles before the coming of Christ. And so being separate from Christ meant that we were separated from the family of God. And that meant here, the phrase that's used is excluded from citizenship in Israel. Excluded from citizenship in Israel. So this can be taken as citizenship, commonwealth, um, or state, a way of life or conduct. As we, as though separate from Christ, were separated from the family of God, which was the Jews. We didn't have the privileges that came with being in the family of God. We had no identity that tied us together as a people. And Ephesians could relate well to this concept, this audience that Paul is writing to, because they knew what it was like to live in the province of Rome, or the, the state of Rome, without being citizens of Rome with its accompanying privileges. So they knew well what was going on. And being without citizenship can be scary. Um, three years ago this time, I went on a mission trip to uh, Mexico. And I think we were on our, our way back, and so we're you know, driving up through Mexico. And we come to some kind of checkpoint, and there's guards there with machine guns and all this kind of stuff, so you're, you're nav- uh, naturally just nervous. And so I don't know why, but they stopped us, of course, and so he, for some reason, points me out in the back, maybe because I look the most scared or something, I don't know. But he pointed me out, and then he brought me out, and he made me, you know, get out, kind of rummage in the back, open this briefcase, open this briefcase, and I'm freaking out because I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not a citizen there. I don't feel at home. And so likewise, when we're not citizens, it can be scary, right? So, but that was our state as Gentiles before the coming of Christ. We didn't have citizenship in the family of God. And then likewise, being separate from Christ meant that we were separated from God himself. So in the Old Testament, and this is used in the phrase, foreigners to the covenants of promise. In the Old Testament, God related to his people Israel through covenants. These covenants were the foundation of relationship with his people. These, co- these covenants gave the Jews two things. A future hope and a connection with God. But we, being separate from Christ, had neither. It was foreign to us. Because we were not part of the covenant that God had made with Israel, we had no relationship with God. It was foreign to us. We were without God, without hope, without a father. We were orphans in the world. This is our state. Now, one might be tempted to think, okay, well, that's just the separation between the Jews and the Gentiles, right? But on either side, right, they had unity of some sort. No. Separation is, is natural to us as humans. It's something that we've been doing since the garden. When we were expelled from the presence of God, just separating and dividing, and we see that in the world today. We are in the business of building walls between each other. And the main wall that, there was the main wall that separated the Jews and the Gentiles, but on each side of the wall, the Jews and the Gentiles separated themselves. The Jews divided based on doctrine. So they had these different, uh, these different districts or beliefs in Judaism. There was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Herodians, the Samaritans, and even the followers of John the Baptist. And we do the same today. Currently, we have 45,000 Christian denominations worldwide. Splitting off doctrine, dividing ourselves. We divide on simple things such as speaking in tongues or head coverings. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the Bible, they divided simply on, their, on the resurrection, if they believed in it. So that's the Jews. But likewise, the Gentiles divide based on affluence. The Greeks divide based on 
uh, were divided uh, by the Greeks and the barbarians. So this is the civilized and the rednecks, the elites and the common folk, the Democrats and the Republicans. And so we do the same today. With this being election year, there will be times when people try to separate us. If we're not careful, we can subconsciously build walls instead of living in the unity that God desires. And then more than just separation or walls between ourselves, there's also walls between us and God, and that's sin. Isaiah 59.2 says that our sins have created a barrier, have created a wall between us and our God. So there's separation there. And so what walls have we built up in our life toward people? Maybe there's someone that you don't completely agree with in the church, or they've offended you. And we all know of the people that have been hurt or offended in the church, and so they say, I'm never going to go back. But that isn't the answer. And most of the time, we build walls in our lives because we've been hurt and we want to protect ourselves. And so we build a wall. But the same walls that divide and protect us are also the same walls that isolate us. Like the worst punishment that we can think of in prison is solitary confinement. Putting someone by themselves alone, separate from all community. And so what walls have we built up in our life toward God? Maybe we're living in pride and sin and rebellion, and our sins have created a barrier between us and the Lord. But the worst part about all this is that we're not able to do anything about it on our own. So imagine, I just, just to get a picture of this or what this might feel like, imagine that you were tasked with taking down the Great Wall of China. Okay, and you stand at the base of it, and then you push, you, you rub your hands against the bricks and stone that have existed for thousands of years, and then you look up at this wall, and with just you, so you push in your own strength, and of course it doesn't move. Then you get a little bit tired, and you walk down a little bit, you try to push another place, and then you realize it's impossible. You're never going to be able to do it. Likewise, the, the walls that had to be separated between us and each other and God could never be separated by what we could do. It was only a work that Jesus could do. We needed someone stronger, holier, and better than us. And this is where Jesus comes in. Okay, so Jesus reconciles us to himself, continuing in verse 13. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Jesus came. And that we could not ascend into heaven, but he descended to us to reconcile all things to himself through his blood. That we're, it says to here that we're brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the Leviticus tells us that the blood is representative of life. In the old covenant, the blood of bulls and goats was given, but it couldn't make anyone perfect. It, it was impossible, as Hebrews says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And the shedding of blood is needed for the forgiveness of sins. But every day, year by year, there was this continual sacrifices, but they couldn't heal the real problem, which was sin in the human heart. It made people outwardly clean, but inwardly, the sin controlled and dominated them. But the blood of Jesus was different, and this is what made it unique. So Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. The blood of, of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they were outwardly clean, outwardly clean. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit offered himself, unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts to lead to death, that we may serve the living God? So the blood of bulls and goats cleanses outwardly, but the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience, cleanses our hearts, and makes us completely new. And he entered into the heavenly tabernacle, 
one that can't, we could not reach and did it on his own. So the way to think about this is it's like a broom in a vacuum. These are kind of the two different ways to think of it, of how the blood uh, in the old covenant and the new took care of sin. So the blood in the old, it was like a broom. So like we've all heard the adage, you know, sweeping it under the rug. And that's what the blood was in the old covenant, sweeping it under the rug. And it just covered it. But the blood of Jesus takes away sins. It's like a vacuum. It takes away sins. And this is why in the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Jesus takes away our sins. And it was through his blood that Jesus inaugurated a new covenant. Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. So instead of being excluded from citizenship and strangers to the covenants of promise, Jesus came and made a new covenant through his blood. We no longer have to be Jewish in order to be part of the family of God. Jesus made a new way, a living way. Hebrews again, 10, 19 through 20. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, opened up for us through the curtain, and I put the wall there just to keep the imagery, that is his body. So there was something that separated us, a curtain, a wall, and a new, a new way has been made through, through the blood of Jesus, one that could not be made on our own. And so he opened a new way. And before we could be reconciled to each other and to God, we first had to be reconciled to Christ. We all know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And then in, in John 10, he says, I am the door. Enter through me and you'll go in and out and find pasture. That If we want life, it begins with his son. So we enter first through Christ and Christ alone. But the reality is, is that most of us here in America feel a real sense of disconnection when it comes to relationships. It's something that we're not really taught how to do in the West. Um, research suggests that you should have three to five people who know you really well, like really well, know everything about you. It, so I'm not, I'm not able to give like, you know, five steps to have deeper relationships. But what I can say from this text, what is made known to us, is that if we want deeper relationships, it begins with a deeper commitment to Christ. If we want deeper, more meaningful relationships, it first begins, we have to enter through Christ and have a deeper connection and relationship with him. That's where it begins. And so the scripture that kind of ties this whole thing together is 1 John 1, 7. I'm not sure if I have it up here. Oh, I do. Okay, good. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That through the blood of Jesus, there is this communion, this relationship that happens. But it enters, we enter through him. It begins with him. And through commitment to him, a new and living way is made open. All the connections that we needed to have is made because of him who has all the connections. We have to begin with him who is the beginning. So continuing, Jesus first reconciles us to himself. And then secondly, Jesus reconciles us to each other. So continuing in Ephesians. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. So this continues with the idea previously shared, that Jesus is our peace. He's not a part of it or a majority of it, that he is all of it. 
In this section, he says that the two previously groups discussed, the Jews and the Gentiles that were divided, were made into one. And he did this by destroying the wall. The thing that we were talking about, the wall, the dividing wall of hostility that stood between us, which was the law. The thing that made the Jews look down on the Gentiles and made the Gentiles despise the Jews, Jesus has taken it out of the way. I think a helpful story or one that maybe help us to think about this is the story of the Berlin Wall. The Berlin Wall can be traced back to after World War II. It was established uh, with the Soviets and the Western Allies, and it separated East Germany and West Germany. And it split Berlin, a city of 2.5 million residents, right down the middle. And so these people who previously had freedom to go about could not cross over as they had previously had. They didn't have that freedom anymore. There was now a wall, a barrier, that was built in 1961. And so... People who wanted that freedom could not have that freedom. And over the years, it's reported some 140 people had died trying to cross the wall or trying to cross. And then we all maybe have seen at least the clip of President Reagan standing 100 yards away from the wall saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. Tear this wall down. And that wall to that point had been standing for 26 years. It was a symbol of different ideologies, what makes us and what makes you different. And on November 9th, 1989, the Cold War officially began to thaw when the head of East Germany's Communist Party announced that the civilians were not able to cross over back and forth. And thousands of East and West Germans went to celebrate the Berlin Wall being taken down with hammers, chisels, all these different things, and they started to take down the wall. And so you can imagine the joy that was in the air, the release, the freedom that this wall that separated us no longer is, is between us anymore that we can have a relationship. And that was a physical wall that stood for 28 years. So how much more a, a spiritual wall that stood for 2,000 years that kept all people separate has now been torn down through Christ. Jesus said, tear this wall down. And he did it through his body on the cross. And he says that he did this by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. So Jesus dismantled the law. How did he do this? Uh, in Matthew, Jesus says of himself, he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law. So the, the, the law was existing, and then Jesus came, and he said, don't, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law, and so everything is accomplished. So we see here in Ephesians that Jesus said that he came to dismantle the law. And in Matthew, it said that the law will not disappear until all is accomplished. Christ, therefore, walked out the law perfectly. What we could not do, he fulfilled it. And his work has been now credited to us by faith. That his, he took the test and his grade has been put on our report card. That he fulfilled it perfectly. Yes. Romans 10.4 says Christ is the culmination of the law. In his perfect life, Jesus fulfilled the moral laws. In his sacrificial death, Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws. He came to finish the old covenant and establish a new. And that's why on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished or it is complete. He completed the old covenant and began a new covenant. And then Romans 8.3 might help us understand this even a little bit more. For what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh. So what this is saying is that, uh, what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is spiritual, but he is a flesh sold in bondage to sin. So the law was not bad, but Paul was bad. 
and he was not able to do it, right? So that's what he's saying. What we were unable to do, what does he say? God did. What did God do? So we couldn't do something, God did something by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, Jesus played the away game. He came and beat sin on its own turf. The sin that took, took opportunity through the commandment and through the flesh to dominate us, Jesus came in the flesh and beat sin. He lived a perfect life so that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the law but by faith in what Jesus has done. Jesus fulfilled it. He is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And why did he do this? To create in himself one new humanity out of the two so that there would no longer be any separation. See, most of the walls that we build between ourselves today are walls of gender, political allegiances, or our income. But what Jesus did through his death is make all those things null and void, that they don't matter anymore. Because now the greatest thing about us is not any of those things, but our identity in Christ. And that it's through his death that a new humanity arises. A new humanity, nothing like the former, that we no longer define ourselves based on what we look like, but now we define ourselves by the Spirit. And so we've been made a new humanity that no matter where we come from or what we like, look like, we're all part of one family. Colossians 3 says, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, uncivilized, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. That we all say we're all children under the same spiritual father who have the same spirit living within us. Therefore, there is reason to have unity. And so when our highest allegiance is to Jesus, it's easy to live in unity with each other. I don't need you to agree with me on every doctrine of the Bible because my first allegiance is to Christ and Christ alone. And we are not first Calvinist or Baptist or anything else, but we're first in Christ. Brothers and sisters, I don't need you to agree with me on every political discussion because that's not the greatest thing about me. The greatest thing about me is that I'm in Christ. I don't need you to look like me because my greatest identity is in Christ. I'm a spirit. We're to know no one after the flesh but after the spirit. And this is the dream. This is the dream that Jesus had for his church. Because right before he died in John 17, as Jonathan was mentioning earlier, He's praying to the Father, and he's speaking of what this people could look like, what they could become. And he says in John 17, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know, then the world will know that you have loved them even as you have loved me. So our unity is a witness that Jesus is alive and that his message is true. And so with this in mind, we have to focus more on what unites us than what divides us. And like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's an election year. And we all remember 2020. And it's just like walls everywhere. Just like divide over this, divide over this, divide over this. But we have to remember that our, our battle is not first against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and unseen evil forces in the world. And our enemy knows the old adage, divide and conquer. That's the thing he's been using since the beginning. It's worked for him for a long time. Uh, he's called in First Peter a lion that goes around looking for someone to devour. And so if you've ever watched Animal Planet um, and you've seen a lion, 
you know, hunt, what they do is they try to separate one from the rest of the pack. And so um, this week, uh, as I was preparing for this, I watched a video. It's called Battle at Kruger. It's on YouTube. And it has like 90 million views. Um, it's about eight minutes long, so you guys should check it out. Whoops. Battle. Sorry about that. And uh, you should check it out. But uh, what happens is these, there's these people watching this, uh, this uh, they're in a, at Kruger National Park in South Africa. And, um, and you can hear the, the people's voices and there's the, the, tour, the tour guide. And they're watching as this wildebeest is coming, this group of wildebeest is coming along this pond. And then all of a sudden these lions come out of this brush and start attacking or pursuing this, this uh, group of wildebeest. And then like we said, they separate one a calf and they tackle it into the water. And so you think this thing's done. And even more so, they, they start to drag it out and then a crocodile comes and then starts pulling and they start fighting over this wildebeest. And then they bring the wildebeest up and then the lions start digging their claws into it. And, uh, and you think that it's all done. But then right when you think like this thing's dead, about a, a group of 100 wildebeest come up. And they, it gets me fired up. I never thought I'd be so excited about wildebeest. But a wildebeest come, they start coming up and they start you know, using their horns and, and getting this wildebeest that, you know, was part of them. And one of them gets one of the lions real good with its horn, and, and they run off, and slowly they get this thing, and this thing that you think is dead comes up, and then he reemerges into the group. And then you hear the, the tour guide say, I've never seen anything like this before. And I think that that's what it's like for the world looking at the church. They see someone separated, and they think, oh, look, this is just another day. Just someone, see, look, they're just like us. Another person separated, another person lost, forgotten. But then right when it looks like we've forgotten one of our own, we come back. And we take in that one that we forgot. And then the world looks at it and says, I've never seen anything like this before. And it's that that makes it a witness to the world. Therefore, regardless of what happens this year, our unity amidst those things, when the world feels like it's going to hell, will be a witness to the world that God is in our midst. So where's our identity? Is our identity in our politics? Is our identity in our race? Is our identity in our gender? Is it in anything other than Christ? Because if it is, we have reason for division. But if our identity is first in Christ, then there's no reason for division. A unity that does not come from the flesh, but comes from the spirit. And then uh, thirdly, Jesus reconciles us to God. So continuing in Ephesians, in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So he says that he came in one body to reconcile them both to God by it putting death their hostility. And studying this week, you could think he's still referring to the Jews and the Gentiles, but actually what he's referring to is the hostility that existed between all of mankind and God. So there was hostility. Jesus reconciles us to God. And as discussed earlier, there was a barrier, the dividing wall that separated us and God was our sins. It separated us. And because of sins, there was hostility between us and God. We sinned and rebelled, therefore Adam's sinful nature was given onto all of us. In Romans 8, it says that the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. In other words, by nature we are enemies of God, that God's wrath abides on us, as it says in John 3. In John 3. And so what signified this, or how you could picture this, is in the old uh, covenant, there was a temple and there was a veil. 
And the veil was, it separated the outer court where the people dwelled and the inner court where God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And this was 60 feet tall and four inches thick. So imagine like two phone books. You know, this, this curtain's really thick, really tall, really heavy. And every time you were to see it, that would be a stern reminder that God dwells in there and you dwell out here. That you don't cross over there and God doesn't cross over here. That there was a, there was a reason for separation and that separation was because of sins. But Jesus, when he died, in three of the four gospels, it says that when he died and cried out, it is finished, that that veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that it was not something that we did, but it was something God did by his spirit. And in, in, in Romans chapter 5, it says, since then, now we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. And what he's talking about here is peace for the Jews and the Gentiles, the rebellious and the religious, all people, that this is the message. Romans 5.1 says that therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And peace is the basis for all genuine connection. Because if you don't think that you have peace, then what you'll try to have peace with in your relationship is performance. And then you're going to act like something you're not. And so to have genuine connection, you have to build on the foundation of peace. So if we're going to have a relationship with God where we feel like we can just be ourselves and just connect with him, it begins with understanding that we have peace with him. That he's forgiven us. And there's nothing that separates from him. And he doesn't need our performance. That he's looking on the performance of Christ. And it's because of that performance that we are then justified and have peace with him. And so the veil has been torn, and we now have full access. There's nothing that separates us. There's access. I, last time I preached, I taught this, the story of the prodigal son, where the son believes that there's division, that there's things that separate, that he can't come home, that if he comes home, he has to be a servant. And so as he's coming home, you know, he's debating what he's going to say, all these different things. Father, make me like one of your hired servants. And then before he can ever open his mouth to begin his speech, it says the father, the doors burst open and the father runs and embraces his son. And so th that's what it's like for us today, that there's nothing that separates. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so this access is through the Spirit. It was given to all of us who have believed in Jesus for salvation and repented of our sins. And God's Spirit isn't regu regulated to a temple made by human hands, but a temple of our bodies. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it talks about this. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, who, have you who you have received from God. So therefore, we have a continual feast that our God is an ever-present help in time of trouble. As Psalm 46 says, that he is with us wherever we go. So if you're living far from God or feel like there's connection or separation because of sin, you're welcome home. There's nothing that separates you. And like I said, if we confess our sin, our faith, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that that wall no longer stands unless we build it. And so the question remains, so that's our old identity. That's who we used to be, right? Then God is making us into this new people. But if God's making us into this new people, who are we ultimately becoming, right? In the beginning, he said, you're separate from Christ. You're all these things excluded from commonwealth, strangers to the covenants of promise. And if that's who we are and we've seen what Jesus has done, who are we now? Who are we becoming as a people? And that's where he finishes in uh, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. 
Consequently, then, you were no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In him you two are being built together to become a dwelling of God, that God which God lives by his spirit. And so if you remember, at, at the beginning of this section of scripture, we're, we're told that we're excluded from citizenship in, in Israel, that we're strangers to the covenants of promise. But now here we've been given a new identity. And what he says in two phrases, he says, you're now fellow citizens and you're members of his household. So we've been made fellow citizens. So we used to be excluded from citizenship in Israel, but now we are fellow citizens with God's people. We are saints. We, we used to have no identity, but now we have a common identity. We have firmly have our place in the family of God. So as Christians, our, our main citizenship is not uh, to a country, but to the kingdom of God. And that is the most important citizenship to have. It's the most uh, esteemed citizenship to have. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this ties back to the beginning. If my, if my first allegiance, or my first identity is to my country, then I have reason to have division with you based on political differences. But if my first allegiance is to Christ and his kingdom, then those things that once seemed big no longer seem so big when our first identity is in Christ. And secondly, we're members of his household. So we used to be orphans, but now we're called sons and daughters. And this reconciles us to God that in Christ Jesus, we are faith. We are, sorry, we are faith. We are children of God through faith. And this family that God is building is also described as a temple, depicted as a temple. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? And so we see that here. He says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets of Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. And so the cornerstone uh, in ancient times was the most important piece when building. It was the stone that you built that set the trajectory for the rest of the house. So if you were going to have columns, it had to align with the cornerstone. What it's saying here is that Christ is our cornerstone. He is our leader. He's our foundation. So we as a community of people have to line up with him who is the cornerstone. And that's where our unity comes from. He is our leader and he's our compass. And it says that in him, this unity, that we grow to become a holy temple in the Lord. So it describes us here as living stones that are being fitted together. And this is really special, really unique, because in the ancient world, there wasn't, with the no, the no use of mortar or things together to, to bind stones, there was an elaborate process by which they cut stones and smooth them out perfectly so that it fit perfectly into the wall. So... If you can imagine, this is very different from what we saw in the beginning, where, you know, there's walls between us, we're separate. But here it's saying that we, each one of us are, are a stone so intricately cut and, and uniquely crafted that without our place in the family of God, it would be look like looking at a cathedral without a, a piece there. That we all have our place, that if you were to look at it, you couldn't tell where one, one stone started and the other ended. So as to be our unity in Christ. That we are elaborately and intricately and uniquely placed in the family of God. And so Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his craftsmanship created in Christ Jesus, that we all have our place in the family of God. And it says that it, as we are united, as we stay together, that we grow to become a holy temple in the Lord. And later in Ephesians, he says he describes us as a body, 
that when, when joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And it's as we are united and as we grow that we become a holy temple in the Lord. In other words, we grow together. So growth is not something that happens separate from the family of God. It's something that happens when we rub shoulders together, when we have relationships with each other. In fact, I was watching an interview this week, um, and this guy was talking about the three things that transform, uh, that were known to transform us. And one was contemplative prayer. The second was deep relationships. And the third was suffering. And we know for certain that those three things transform people. And so if we want to be transformed, it begins with having deep, meaningful relationships with other people. Ephes uh, sorry, uh, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So it's as we rub shoulders together that we're transformed and challenged and therefore grow. So if you're not seeing much growth in your Christian life or you're not feeling connected, do you have people in your life? that you can contact for prayer, encouragement? Are you part of a small group of people that, can, that know you really well? Because it's in that place that you're transformed into Christ's way. And, and you each have something very unique that only you can contribute to the family of God. And with you, we are stronger, but without you, we are weaker. And it's in him that this whole building is growing to become a holy temple, that we are meant or are being built into a habitation of God by his spirit. And as we saw in 1 Corinthians 3.16, that we are a temple of the Lord. And it's this, his presence among us, we as a people, that distinguishes us and makes us different from the rest of the world. Moses, when talking to the Lord about the presence of the Lord, he said that, Lord, what distinguishes us from the rest of the people unless your presence goes with us? Likewise, it is for us. So the imagery used here is that there's no longer any wall separating us, but we have become one. There's no longer walls between us and God or us and each other. But all those walls have been separated, and we've now become united in Christ. We have a relationship with it. All things have been reconciled by Christ. And so as we think of a application or what to leave here with, a couple things, two things rather, is we have to let down our walls and let people in. We have to let down our walls and let people in. So we cannot, by nature, we cannot be connected to people that we are not vulnerable with. So, because if we, if, if someone loves us or does something good for us, we're just going to say, oh, they love the false self that I'm giving them. If they really knew. If they really knew who I was. Right? So that's why we have to let our walls down and be vulnerable with each other and connect with one another. If we're going to be really united and have these deep, unifying relationships that God desires. I remember when I went to ministry school, uh, it was the first week of school. So a ton of people from all over the world, nobody knows each other. And we're in our first week, we go to retreat in Northern California in the mountains. And we're in this tent, and it's between, like, breakfast and lunch, so we have some free time during the day. And our pastor gets up and begins to share their testimony about how vulnerability changed their life, that they were dealing with all these different things, and, and through vulnerability, they were set free. And so, giving that testimony, she said, okay, does anyone want to share? And then, it was the longest silence ever, but after, it had to have been maybe just 10 seconds. Someone stood up and said, you know, I'll share. So they get up and they start to pour out their heart. And then there's tears, there's weeping, and then that opens it up. And people all over just stand up, start sharing. And that group that at the beginning was kind of awkward and we didn't know each other, we felt so close afterward. 
And so if we're going to have connection, it begins with vulnerability. Vulnerability is necessary for, for connection. So we have to let our walls down. We have to confess our shortcomings. It's three things. Can talk about your values and, and, and passions and reveal your fears. And then secondly, we have to let the Lord in. We have to let down our walls and let God in. That means getting rid of sin in our life. That means allowing him to speak to us daily. We have to get down these walls and allow God into our life through Christ. That if we confess our sins, as said before, that he will forgive us. And so we may all be different. We all may look different. But at the end of the day, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And you can't get rid of family. So no matter how much they annoy you or how much they're different from you, at the end of the day, you're still family, right? And likewise, it's, it's the same for us. That we were created to be part of a family that belongs, that is a unified family. As Jesus' vision for his church, he says that they may dwell together in complete unity. And so don't let walls keep you from the fullness that what God has called you to. Your potential will only be realized within the context of a family. And it's when we're honest with ourselves and our church family that we become closer, and then we will become a city on a hill, giving light to the rest of the world that God is in the world. Amen? Um, I, I felt to, you know, just to kind of signify and wrap this up, um, I was thinking of a way that we could practically just show our unity. And I was thinking if we could sing a song together. It's very simple. So, you know, there's a lot of voices in here, but as we raise our voice, we all become one voice, right? So, uh, what's the song called, Esther? I love you, Lord. So, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray that um, you would help us to dwell together in unity. Help us, Lord, to let our walls down between ourselves and you, that we would receive your son, receive life that's available in your community as being part of you, Lord. Lord Jesus, thank you that there is life, as Jonathan shared, that in you is life, and the life is the light of all mankind. And thank you, Lord, that it is as simple as trusting in you today. Help us, Lord. Help us to live in unity. We thank you for it. Holy Spirit, only you are called the spirit of unity. So, Lord, we ask for that in Jesus' name, for your spirit to dwell among us, to bring unity among us. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.